Welcome to episode 124 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Welcome to the Reformed Coldcast. I'm the stealing Reformed your name. The yeah, both of us are fighting cold, so it's going to be a little rough this week, folks. So thanks for sticking with us. How is it that I always have a cold? I feel like you were in relatively good health, but my voice is, again, always doing this thing where either it's temporarily going low or I'm entering that life change. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's bad this week. Everybody's getting a cold. I have an employee at work that has like has the flu, like legit influenza A. So it's it's kind of a rough time of year. You got to stay away from that. Yeah. I think for me, it's like the temperature going up and down. I, I don't know. Like in, I don't know if it's like this in Pennsylvania, but in New Hampshire right now, it's like one day will be 50 degrees and everything's melting. And then like two days later, it'll be like negative 10 degrees. So my body just doesn't know what to do. Yeah. Two things. One, it's crazy. I agree with you. It's immune system roller coaster. Two, for us, in introductory commentary, all roads lead to weather. <laughs> We cannot get away from weather. Yeah, I know. We try. We, <laughs> we try, tried. but it still comes back to weather. It, it always comes back to weather. It's like the Death Star. You just can't avoid it. The Death Star? You can't avoid the Death Star? I don't know. Star? Was it a proper Star Wars reference? I felt like it, it doesn't have I've a I've never heard anyone say that. I feel like in the grand scheme of things, most people in the Star Wars galaxy avoid the Death Star. <laughs> like, there's very few people that actually interact with the Death Star in any way. This is why I shouldn't try to make cultural references to the Death Star, or Star Wars for that matter. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah we should just move on. Yeah, let's just move on. I'm, I, no, I, don't, I don't think we can move on, though. I'm trying to think now. <laughs> Would that make sense to say that? I suppose Isn't you could gr- say it in like a, like a fatalistic sense, like for Luke, right. all roads lead to the Death Star. But for right. most That's people, no roads lead to the Death Star. I'm just out of my depth. I, I should have yeah. never even said anything about the Death Star. I did, of all of this. That's like when I tried to like make a basketball analogy and had no <laughs> idea what I was talking about. That was great. Our listeners are so great because nobody emailed us and was like, Tony, you're an idiot. Point guard <laughs> is, a de- is an offensive position, which makes no sense at all. But it, uh, they didn't even, they were just like, yeah. He just, he, we don't pay him to know basketball. We pay him to know theology. They don't really pay us anyways, yeah. but um, I was a few say, people do. A few yeah, people that's true, us. and we are appreciative of that. Yes. Well, why don't Clearly. we... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we are... Str- it's the struggle bus tonight. Oh, uh, this is great. I love it. Well, you're right. It, in terms of... Uh, you're right in terms of we need a transition, which is, I think, where you were going with that. Yeah, so yeah, let's Let me just started. plow us right ahead. So... <laughs> As usual, super stoked to talk to you because this year we're doing a book club, and we this are. is the second bookcast. We're talking about Reform Preaching, Chapter 2. Yeah. You know, I was looking at it, and uh, we're saying this year we're doing a book class, but actually next year we're doing a bookcast, too, because there are 24 well, chapters in this bad boy. <laughs> so it's going to be a long road, folks. It's going to be a long road. Maybe not the five-year plan that uh, Voss Group is on, but it's still going to be a long, a long process. But it's good because we're this coming book, for your reform forum. This book has so much in it that, like, it's good to just sort of like slowly chew on it. It's like a good I steak. Agree. You don't wolf it down. 
you take small bites, you enjoy it, you have a good wine with it or a nice beer. So, you know, I was I thinking just this second, not previously, but just this second, there should be an art. You know how like you can pair wine or beer with food? There should be an art of pairing yes. beer with a good book. Like what kind of beer goes with reform preaching as a book? Do you want to go first? Or do you want me to go first? Why don't you go first? You know, I got beer, something. You know more than I do about beer, so I got I got some. Well, I don't know about that, but I got some. I think what you want with this is just a nice traditional stout, something robust. It needs to be able to hold up against all the solid thinking you're going to do. You're also going to need a little bit of energy, yeah. a little bit of brain power, a little bit of glucose. So I think the stout is where what would be a great pairing. What do you think? Yeah, I was thinking like a like a good hearty like oatmeal stout, Some, something with a little bit of sweetness to it, something that you can like chew on a little bit because it's got yeah. it's got to hold up. You're right, you got to have the energy to it. Yeah, you need a meal in a glass, and that's really yeah. only going to happen if you get a stout. Yeah, maybe like a good porter, like a good chocolate porter would be good too. Yeah, I'm down with that. Again, once how do we have so many great ideas that we actually cannot execute? Well, I feel like we just did execute it. This is like but, a new this is a new podcast <laughs> waiting to happen. Beer and books. Beer and books, yeah. That's the way to go. Yeah. I, I like that. Well, we're into chapter 2 and it's entitled Preaching from Head to Heart and it's a it's Dr. Beaky's still kind of focus on something that's a little bit more introductory, but I get the sense that he's really doing his work to set a solid framework for us to understand where he's going to go when he starts to, to use examples of preachers later on. Yeah, my impression of this chapter was, you know, the first chapter was pretty long. Um, and so the first chapter was like a really big picture view of kind of where the whole book is going. And so now it seems like the book is kind of narrowing down and he's breaking apart that definition of reform preaching or, or that definition of experiential preaching. And he's drilling down even further to kind of focus it and narrow that definition even further, which is going to set the stage for kind of the rest of the book once we get into the uh, like the example chapters. I agree. And one of the things I find interesting about this chapter, and maybe this will be the same throughout the book, there's a lot of language focused around pe- preachers in terms of, you know, preachers should ask this kind of question, preachers should be thoughtful about this particular thing. But I found that really below the surface all those questions can really still be applied to listeners. And I found yeah. a lot of conviction in some of the stuff that he was saying. And part yeah. of that is he, he starts out with defining lots of terms, but where he begins is this distinction between head knowledge and heart knowledge. Yeah. And he kind of focuses on head knowledge being explicitly or implicitly that which is strictly intellectual or theoretical. And then he contrasts that with heart knowledge, which he defines as something that resonates in the soul and is imbued with spirit-enabled power to produce fruit in our lives. And even just starting with those basic definitions, I felt some conviction because I think even if sometimes we consider that our knowledge is, is heart knowledge, it's possible that it's actually implicitly head knowledge. And so I was curious about what you kind of thought about those distinctions and how they kind of apply to our general lives. Yeah, I think that's one of those distinctions that reform people kind of hear and almost sort of like roll their eyes at because it's, right. like, it's so cliche that like, well, you know, you can know it with your head, but you got to know it with your heart. Like it's one of those things you actually hear in like evangelical circles. And sometimes it's used to almost like push against the concept of like heady knowledge or intellectualism. That's obviously not what Dr. Beakey's doing here. So I, I actually I'm reading each chapter twice before we record. 
And the first time that I read through it, I actually kind of had that reaction like, oh, come on, you're going to go to the head heart distinction. But right. reading through it the second time after letting it marinate for a little while, it was kind of like, okay, I see, I see what he's doing here. And I think you're right. Like a lot of times I've been convicted because I, I used to take super detailed notes during a sermon, like really, really detailed notes, like a really detailed outline. I would be looking up words. I'd be pulling in Greek terms. I mean, I was doing all of it. And I've been convicted lately that that's actually been more of a distraction from just kind of letting the word be preached over me. And, you know, that's not to say like taking detailed notes or thinking thinking during a sermon is bad. But on one level, I was almost treating being preached to almost like sermon prep. Well, the way that I was looking at it is I right. was like collecting facts that I would then use later for some other purpose. And I was missing the fact that the, the point of the sermon is for the preaching of God's word to be a means of grace to me, which is effectual unto sanctification. Sanctification. So I think that this distinction is really something that we need to kind of recover as reformed Christians. So I was glad that Dr. Beakey was kind of bringing this out uh, in his book. I think a humbling exercise would be to consider what portion of our Christian lives is purely intellectual. That yeah. is kind of like where you're going. There's a lot of things that we do that are good habits, but how often do those habits actually translate into some kind of change, effectual fruit in our lives? And we've talked about this before. I think we actually used this example, but I love that Dr. B draws this out. He kind of talks about knowing something about a person as akin to head knowledge and then knowing something, knowing someone personally as akin to heart knowledge. And then he goes on to make this like really interesting dis distinction by saying, we are meant and made to know God personally in this kind of experimental and experiential way because we are known by him in his gracious love. And then yeah. he goes on to talk about, or to quote rather, like 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3, which goes, now concerning food offered to idols... We know that all of us possesses knowledge. I mean, that's like contemporary right there. This knowledge puffs up, again, contemporary, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So it's interesting to think that knowledge really has no power for salvation onto itself, or it even doesn't even have any power to bring life change. And so there's this wonderful sense that the Christian life hinges on knowing the Lord with grateful love in response to his knowing us. So I've been reading this chapter and thinking it's almost as if we could just as easily say, well, we love God because he first loves us. But of course, we know God because he has first known us. Yeah, and that's, that's one of those things that's really central to Reformed thought that is not central in other traditions, is that God's knowledge precedes his action. I know like right. that's a weird way to talk because in God there's no distinction between his knowledge and his action. It's it because of divine simplicity. But in terms of conceptualizing things, we tend to know about something because we experience it. You know, we we know our spouses because we've experienced them first in a dating relationship and now as husbands we've experienced them as wives. And um with God, his knowledge precedes and motivates his action. So he he foreknows us and because he foreknows us, he chooses us and then and then acts to bring about the salvation that he has elected for us. So I think that it's important for us to to recognize this distinction he's making that yes, we know God only because God has known us in advance. And because of that right. knowledge, he has chosen us, predestined us, you know, called us justified, sanctified, glorified, all of these things that he's done and is doing 
is a result of him knowing us. And it's only because of that knowledge that he has of us, not just knowledge, but like a personal intimate knowledge of us that we can hope to, and increasing fashions have a, a similar kind of personal intimate knowledge of him. Right on. And that has like kind of led me in the course of reading this chapter to really once again that consider, I think, the way he defines it properly, uh, the heart knowledge is monergistic. You know, going back to what you said about how the cliche in evangelical culture between, even like how you said it was right on point, kind of like you could have head knowledge, but you need to have heart knowledge. Like it comes right. with a sense of feeling even when you say it. Yeah. There's like this sentimentality. And I think that there's sometimes a sense where like you have to work at your heart knowledge. You have to like really metabolize something or chew on it for a long period of time or make it kind of coalesce with your emotions such that it means something to you. But the way that we're talking about it, I think we're really talking about it as monergistic because heart knowledge, the heart knowledge of God is acquired as a result of a personal encounter with the risen Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. So back to your point about how you understand and kind of even absorb sermons, hopefully when we're sitting under the preaching of our pastors, that's exactly what's happening there. Like we are encountering Christ I think this goes again back to when we move away from the regular principle of worship, we move away from the possibility of encountering Christ because we're manufacturing work worship in a nominal sense, or in a normative sense rather, in our own nature. And therefore, we're actually doing ourselves a greatest disservice because we're not able by the power of the Spirit to receive that heart knowledge, which God wants to grant as a means of grace in the preaching of His Word. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. And I think, you know... As I'm as I'm reasoning through this and thinking through this in my head, the other thing that I'm convicted of um, lately is, you know, when I'm in a sermon and I'm being preached to, um, our theological conviction is that when the word of God is rightly preached, it's the word of God that's preached. So the the pastor is not um, synthesizing God's word, but he's actually preaching God's word prophetically. We've talked about that at right. length. And so it's not just information that's being presented to me for my digestion, for my uh, comprehension, my um, appropriation, my digestion, but it's Christ who is confronting me in the sermon. So it's not it's not just that the the preacher is is preaching to me, but it's Christ Himself who is is communicating to me through the pastor prophetically. The same way I can say, or a similar way that I can say, God communicates to me through Isaiah in the, the writings of the prophet. Um, I can say in a similar sense that this morning when uh, dad preached to us, he was confronting us as a messenger of God prophetically. And so in a very real sense, Christ confronts me. And so that, that right. heart knowledge should be coming from, not from ruminating on the information that's presented to me, but a recognition of the fact that, that Christ stands in a sense in the pulpit and, and he is preaching to me. He is confronting me from the pulpit. And it is an encounter with the risen Christ that I'm having in uh, the preaching of the word. And then I think in a, in a different sense, and perhaps especially on the Sundays that we do the Lord's Supper, Christ is confronting me in the sacrament and in the word as well. And that's a great point, because that's why we need to be so thankful for the Lord's Day, right? Because God has made this as a means of grace. We all want a personal encounter with God. And sometimes what we tend to do is try to manufacture that in some other way outside of the the time of corporate gathered worship, when God says, well, this is the means in which I want to deliver a personal encounter to you. And that's the place where we're easy to say, well, that's disposable or dispensable. I mean, it's this idea that preaching should 
root the hard experience in the head knowledge. I mean, I know that you and I aren't throwing out that head knowledge, which is important, but if that hard experience that being confronted, like you're saying, becomes unfettered from head knowledge, the result is mysticism, which we see a lot in our world. Even we see, I think, well-intentioned Christians go under this kind of mystical path. Yeah. And unchecked mysticism, I think, inevitably ends up replacing the Bible like subjectivism, and it pushes out faith in the saving worth of Christ, because then salvation just becomes a quest for like experience of sentimentality. You know, it's like this idea of, well, how can I encounter experience with God? I want to go to the physical mountaintop, or I want to spend some time outside, or I want to get that that quiver or the hair standing up on the back of my neck because the music is particularly moving to me in some case. Right. Like all those things are fine on some level, but they cannot and will not, and of course should not, replace this confrontation that you were just talking about by way of personal encounter. Yeah, and... You know, I, I want to sort of like sneak peek to the end here because there's a quote that um, comes at the end of the chapter that I actually think serves really well to frame up the whole chapter and the point of what he's trying to get at. It's on the very last page of the chapter. Page 56 is the second to last full paragraph. And he says, um, we need exper- experiential preaching. God can work saving faith through mere teaching indeed through the bare words of scripture on the page, but ordinarily he ignites a burning heart with a burning preacher. And so for me, you know, he's writing this book predominantly to preachers, right? It's not a preaching manual, but it is the target audience is, are those who will be filling the pulpit, pulpit, the pumpkin, the pumpit will be filling (laughs) the pulpit to address the Lord's people on the Lord's day, right? But right. um, as a person who is primarily a listener of sermons, right? I'm not. I'm. I preach occasionally, but I'm not a preacher. I'm not a minister. I'm not ordained. I'm not licensed. I'm. I'm not even really preaching from a theological perspective. I'm. I'm sharing a message. I'm speaking, but I'm not preaching. Right. But. The point is that for that for someone who's primarily a consumer, if you even want to use that word, of sermons, the the recipient of sermons, I'm not often looking at it as though the sermon is, and particularly the preacher that God has ordained that I sit under from week to week, I'm not looking at it usually as though that is the person, or that is the means by which God has has um, ordained to fan fan to full flame the fire that he's placed in my heart, the, the, the spark of regeneration that he's placed in my heart. And so for me, that was humbling that like, I need to go into the Lord's day and particularly I need to sit under the preaching of my pastor and recognize this is the ordained means of grace that God has established by which he wants to grow me in holiness and sanctify me. And if we're not coming into the Lord's day with that perspective, then I think we're missing the boat on a large portion of what God wants to do with us on the Lord's day, particularly. That's why this book is pretty cool because I get the sense that I'm kind of getting like a peek behind the curtain with some of this stuff. And I think without that peek, I wouldn't be able to appreciate exactly what you just said. Peek is like a weird word because it sounds like I'm a sermon peeping Tom, but being able to just (laughs) kind of see into what he's talking about here in, in kind of a more complex and nuanced way, or maybe a better way is like depth. Like he talks about depth and dominion, that being the realm of that heart knowledge. And I'm glad you brought up the thing about experimental and experiential because I'm really growing to love those words. And I know in this chapter, he speaks a little bit about 
how experimental kind of has an archaic or outmooded understanding in our common vernacular. I like, though, that he says both of those words have their roots in this idea of knowledge verified by testing something in real life. Yeah. And that really appealed to me, resonated with me deeply as, like you said, a listener of sermons because what he's driving at, I think, is he's not saying that what we need to do is like test the veracity of scripture. That's like the wrong presupposition. But it's this idea that to put scripture into practice, we're doing so because it's true and efficacious and we need to do that. That's like experimental and experiential. And that is something that I I fail to do. And I think oftentimes we sometimes either implicitly or explicitly receive a message by way of a sermon and we get the sense of, oh yeah, I should really test that out. Like let's, let's see if kind of misunderstanding this taste and see if the Lord is good. Like this idea of, yeah, you know what? I should really try to have more faith and see if that really works. But that's, that's not what he's getting at here. Right. Yeah, it's really more along the lines that the sermon, or probably more accurately, God's word as it is preached to us, or preached over us, the sermon is testing us. So when we talk about experimental preaching, or experiential preaching, and and I actually like both words, right? He kind of talks about them as though they're synonyms, and they, um, they... one is replaced the other, which is true. Experimental is the old, kind of the older language. Experiential sort of the new. But there, he also traces the Latin of the difference between experimental and experiential. And I think the various, the sort of the shades of meaning that are present is really cool. Because an experimental sermon is a sermon that um, tests your experience by the word of Scripture. Not, not a sermon that you're testing by your experience, but completely the opposite. So when I come in, you know, I come in on a Sunday morning and I'm, I'm trying to think more along the lines of Sunday is the first day of the week. I'm coming to sort of be energized and prepared for my week. I'm also reflecting on the previous week and I'm saying like, man, you know, I had, I had this happen. I had that happen. This is, this is the truth that, that reality seems to be throwing at me. And then I sit down and I line it up in front of God's word and either it matches or it doesn't. And so often the sermon, I think, serves to reorient our understanding of reality because it it reorients our priorities. It reorients our perspective on things. And that's, that's how it's experimenting on us is it's testing our experience. It's testing our perspective. And it's saying, does this really line up with the word of God? Does, does the argument you had with your wife on the way to church that morning, does that line up with the word of God and who you're supposed to be as a husband? Well, no, it doesn't. So like those kinds of questions are the ones that come up in sermons or should come up in sermons that I know in my past, not speaking of the church I'm at now, but in previous churches, I didn't always feel like that was the case. We talked about that before. Like the Valentine's Day series about being married as a single guy, like it just sucked. It didn't do anything for me. It wasn't, it wasn't testing my experience in the sermon at all. It wasn't, it wasn't applying the scriptures to me at all. And that's something that I think really needs to come back to the forefront for those of us who are coming into sermons being preached to, we need to understand what the sermon is doing. And if it's not doing that, then we need to have a starting ground, like a ground conversation with our pastor saying, Hey, you know, this is really what, a, this is what I'm reading this book. And this is what I think a sermon is supposed to be. And I'm really not seeing that. So can you help me understand like what you're trying to accomplish in the sermon? What are you trying to do in, in the lives of your people? And maybe they're just, maybe there's just a disconnect or maybe they've never thought about it this way, but either way, like that's the way we need to look at this coming into a sermon. Right. Because there's a beautiful end goal here. And that is 
the whole purpose of experimental and experiential preaching is to know God personally, like intimately, directly. And I would even say like corporately in a way that's congruent with the scriptures, but that's moving us beyond this sense of where we just know facts about God. We just know things we've read the book. And so therefore we have some sense about him, but unless like you said, we're being tested by the scriptures in such a way that we are putting into practice the very truths that are found in the full counsel of God, then how can we even expect to know God anyway except by rote memorization of facts? It's impossible. Right. And so I think that's part of the convicting thing is as hearers of sermons, one, are we sitting under that kind of preaching, to your point, are we willing to have conversation to kind of understand and move us in a direction that is basically experimental and experiential, but... You know, according to Dr. Beakey, he says at one point, and I, I forget what this quote is, but he says, does my preaching, he's talking to pastors, does my preaching help people to walk closely with God in real life? Or does it simply set up a beautiful world of ideas disconnected from their past experiences? Yeah. And I actually, when I read that thought, that's something all Christians should ask. Like the way that I live, the way that I understand the scriptures, the way that I communicate the truth of the gospel to other people around me, does that actually influence, help me to walk more closely with God in real life? Or am I just setting up a world of beautiful ideas? And that's very convicting for, uh, for me because I think that my tendency is to set up really good ideas that sound yeah. pretty and are weighty, but are often, I don't want to say disconnected, but do not permeate the way in which I think my attitudes, even at like a base level, like I I would think that the goal in being close to God in knowing him personally is to know him so closely that our default position is to walk closely with the Lord Jesus Christ, to emulate his behavior, to run to God, to turn towards him instead of away from him. And yet we know that we will not do that perfectly in this life, but how close are we to making that that habitual normative practice? And that's where I think experimental and experiential preaching comes to bear in our lives in such a profound way. I'm really taken with this idea of experimental. I I almost prefer that word, though you said they're separate, in priority, because I find that to be the one that's really heavy for me. It's this idea of not like testing something to see whether it's true, but am I just putting this stuff into my life so that I can see that it bears fruit? Because it's what God has said is the truth about reality. And so therefore, my presupposition isn't, well, I should try this out because I think it might work and have some kind of ancillary benefits, but I should just, I should put it into practice because this is the way to live, not just the right way to live. This is the only way to live. You know, like, does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, it does. And, and I mean, I feel like this is one of those episodes and, and one of those chapters in a book where like, it's, it's repeating itself, but it's doing so because this point is so important. Like it's, we're circling around this point and we're revolving around this point so much, but that's because we really need to land this. Not just for, not just because this is foundational to this book that we're going to be talking about over the next year and a half, two years, but because this is really foundational to the life of a Christian who is sitting under the teaching of a pastor, which all Christians should be sitting under the teaching of a pastor. And this is also why it's so important to be sitting under the teaching of a local pastor. Because, right. you know, I, I don't know why, like, I always use Matt Chandler as the example. Maybe it's because he served this role in my life for a while. But Matt Chandler is never going to know what's going on in my life. Matt Chandler has no idea who I am. He has no clue who I am. He probably never will. I'll, I'll probably never meet him. He'll probably never know my name. He'll probably never know that I work at a hospital. He'll never know any of those things about my life. So he can't replace what God wants to do in the life of a, in the, in the, um, 
the presentation of a local pastor because that local pastor does know those things about my life. And so he can test my life by the, by the standard of Scripture in experimental preaching in a way that an internet preacher never could, or even a preacher at a megachurch, right? If I went to a church of 6,000 people, that pastor still probably would never be able to approach me in this experimental way at that a pastor at a church of 50 or 25 or even 100 could. So I, I think, you know, this this has to do with our ecclesiology. It has to do with our understanding of how large a local church can get before it, it can no longer serve the function that it's supposed to, which there's no magical number. You know, there's different ways of organizing local plurality of elders to try to account for larger groups. But, but if you have a group that is so large that, that your preacher cannot know it's his people and cannot preach in a way that is testing their lives by the standard of scripture, then you need to rearrange your church in a way that allows it to happen. And so I think it's really important that we land this because it is foundational for so many things. Hold up. Are you actually making the case that Joel Olstein doesn't know all of his parishioners? Joel Olstein does. I'm, I'm saying he does. <laughs> that man is a legend. How dare you? How dare you, sir? Joel Olstein doesn't that even That was care. the best response. There was such a beautiful pregnant pause right before that answer. I could tell that, that you were really confused. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, there's these big churches. And, you know, I, I'm trying to thread the needle here because Matt Chandler, John Piper, like these guys that have these really big churches – um, they're trying to honor God and they're trying to do things in a way that For sure. um, is faithful to their understanding of the Reformed tradition. Obviously, both Matt Chandler and John Piper have issues that I think a fully orbed reform uh, perspective kind of progresses past where they are in terms of their ecclesiology, their understanding of the spiritual gifts, all those things. But they're trying to be faithful to not just the Reformed tradition, but to the, what the Bible has to say. But I think that they have missed, and John Piper's maybe more ironic than Matt Chandler since he's so steeped in Puritanism. They've missed the fact that they need to know their people. And so they they have these large churches that I can't imagine how they would know their people. And I know like John Piper, when he was pastoring at Bethlehem, they had a satellite location that he was never at. So like he never even saw the right. people in one location. So I'm just not sure how you line that kind of a church model. And I'm not talking about ecclesiology. I'm just talking about like logistics, how you line that logistical model up with what the Bible says about how a pastor is supposed to interact with and know his people. Sure. And we have kind of a different sense of temptations, so to speak, in this modern era because of like the ability to listen to a podcast or sermon from afar and think that we're being fed in a way that's similar to if we were sitting in the pew. And I think of an interesting example for me. So obviously your father-in-law is my father and he's your pastor. That was probably super confusing the way that I said that for a lot of people. But he knows me personally, of course. I speak with him and I listen to his sermons on the podcast. But in a, in a strict sense, he's not my pastor. I mean, right. in some ways, he'll always be my pastor. But 
he he's not the one who's he's speaking to me on the Sunday morning that in a sense has a different understanding of what's going on in my life. He's, he will address that with me in conversations on the side, but I should not expect that just because he's my father that by listening to his sermon on a given Sunday that he's necessarily speaking to me. He's speaking to those who are in front of him. I know right. that his concern is to have a heart for what's going on in his, his congregation. So I love that this idea of experimental experiential preaching places a really high value on the full counsel of God and Jesus Christ, because it is always putting those forward as our eternal contemporary. They're never outmooded. They're never in such a place where they're archaic. There's always something to say about our lives. They're always pertinent. And there's this constant reaching into our lives so that they might be pulled out, turned inside out, so to speak, and then tested in the light of the scriptures. And I think if you look at any church that has gone off the rails, that is far from the word of God, that is far from the truth, you're going to find that they stop doing that very thing, that they're actually afraid of laying the scriptures in because they know that the scripture itself will test them. So when the best part of the sermon becomes something other than the scriptures, this is what's going to inevitably result is a church that yeah. falls away. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the thought just struck me, you know, we talked about on um, one of our Christmas cast episodes about worship music and about how a lot of times we end up with these sort of liberal presuppositions about authorial intent. And I wonder if we don't at times do that with sermons when we listen to them online and we like, this is the way that I'm thinking about it is when I, I listen to a Matt Chandler sermon and um, I find it very meaningful and it speaks to my life. Like I have that experience. Well, the intent of the author had nothing to do with me. So whatever meaning right. I'm drawing out of it, whatever, and I guess this is the distinction I'm making. This is how I connect it to this chapter. Whatever, whatever um, head knowledge is being presented to me and I'm appropriating, however that gets converted to heart knowledge for me has nothing to do with the intent of Matt Chandler and his preaching. And so in a certain sense, in order to take that head knowledge that's being, that, that's being transmitted electronically to me through a podcast and convert that to heart knowledge, I have to somehow reappropriate the meaning of that sermon to myself in a way that it was not intended to. And so I, I just, we have to understand the church is not supposed to be disincarnate. And what I mean by that is the church is an embodied physical reality. The local church is a physical reality. It exists in a place at a particular time with a particular group of people. And the sermon, in a certain sense, is almost like the thought process of that organism, right? So the pastor, as sort of the head of that congregation, he communicates a sermon that has particular intended meaning for that congregation. When, um, like, next week I'm, I'm delivering the sermon, I'm going to have examples in my sermon that are specifically brought about that I use specifically because of situations that I know that are going on in the church. Someone who listens to that sermon on the other side of the country, the examples I use, they may, they may be instructive for them, but they may not, but they weren't intended for them. They were intended for the people that I assume are going to be in the service that day. So if I, if I happen right. to use, this is just a silly example. Well, it's not a silly example. It's a real example that's happened in the past. I was delivering the sermon one weekend and a family in our congregation, their dog that they had for, I don't know, 15 years, had they had to put the dog down. And so part of my sermon was talking about the suffering in the world. And as an example I used, I used the pain that comes about from having to put down the family pet. Well, if someone else on the other side of the country also just put down a pet 
and listens to the sermon and finds comfort in in the the words that I brought from the scripture, that's great. But I was talking about the pet of the family in my church, not this pet on the other side. So I, I don't want to get too like wrapped up in this, but I just had that thought that we have to remember that in order for this heart knowledge to happen, we have to, that has to be intended by the pastor. And that's what I think Dr. Beaky is getting at is that when, when a, a pastor gets up and preaches, he is looking at his congregation. He's crafting the sermon to specifically test, not just, general experience against the scriptures, but he's testing his congregation and his people's experience against the scriptures. He's testing those particular people in the sermon. And that's what's meant by experimental preaching. Not just some vague idea of like testing experience, but testing particular experiences of particular people against the standard of scripture. That's a really interesting idea. I, I haven't really thought of it that way. I, I think I agree. Like my initial response is even beyond just like the specific examples that might be relevant to a particular circumstance in the congregation. It seems like Dr. Beaky is saying, listen, what God is doing in the life of the pastor in preparation for that sermon is really focused on his particular congregation. Like the pastor who has that heart that's on fire for his people necessarily is going to receive from the Lord the exact word that they need. I don't think that means that people can't listen to it elsewhere around the world and still be blessed by it. But in right. that blessing, that itself should drive them back into their local churches to be fed in the same way that that pastor in the podcast is feeding his particular congregation. Right. So I, I think you're right. Like I think what he's trying to say is kind of wake up to what's happening here. The reality is that experiential preaching is for the people of God. It's confrontational. It is the ambassador, the emissary of the Lord Jesus Christ on Sunday morning, on the Lord's Day, expounding and prophesying to the people of God in a direct sense, in a particular locale, because that's the way that God was ordained it. And that's the way that God has prepared that pastor for that particular Lord's Day. So yeah, I guess we're harping on that a lot, but that's like the, this is the inside baseball that I think he's telling us. Like, this is where it's at. This is what we need to open our eyes to. And that's why this book is really good for people that aren't just preachers, because I am getting a grander sense of what's happening on Sunday morning. I'm almost getting like this, this awe of just being there, that God would make this special space and place for us. And that it's something that's so wonderfully transcendent and better than I could have imagined before that I really just want to talk it up, which is clearly what we're doing right now. Yeah. Yeah, and this is the beauty of God's sovereignty is so even when you're you're in a church and your pastor does not preach in this method, does not understand these concepts, you're still being tested by the word of God. Like you're right. being there. The fact that you're sitting in a particular congregation and that a particular sermon is being preached on a day that you're there is ordained by God for his glory and for your benefit. And so, you know, we have to be careful because I want to avoid the idea that like, well, I go to a, you know, I go to an evangelical church and my pastor wouldn't even know how to spell experimental, let alone know what experimental preaching is, right? I want to avoid the idea that somehow that means that the preaching of the word there is not efficacious because in in any congregation, God has placed the, both the pastor and the particular congregation together, right? He's ordained that those two those two entities are going to meet and be um, joined together in a covenant bond, right? Not in a, like, that sounded weird, but like there's a covenant 
that happens when you join a church in formal membership. And that covenant bond is ordained by God for a specific purpose. So even, even if your pastor is not intending to preach experimentally, God is still operating through that sermon to test your experience against the, against the standard of Scripture. So we can't, we can't even really avoid it. Right? That doesn't mean we shouldn't be intentional about it, but we should also recognize that just because my pastor doesn't has never heard of experimental preaching doesn't mean that God isn't going to use that sermon to test us in our lives and to, to try us against the standard of Scripture. I think it's a bit like the regular principle in that when we talked about that on the podcast, we mentioned that for the most part, most churches, most Bible-honoring churches move toward the regular principle by default. There's not right. a lot of normative action out there. And I think in some respects, this is the same way. Though, like you said, pastors might know it by this particular label. Those that are really seeking to preach the word of God end up kind of by default moving into this experiential or experimental realm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's almost, um, you know, sermons that are like overly heavy on application. Like that, that's the default, right? If, if, if a pastor, um, you know, you can kind of tell sometimes the inexperienced preachers because they're heavy on application. Because in a certain sense, application is almost easier to construct in a sermon than the exegetical explanations, right? It's easier right. to take a passage and think about how does this apply to my life um, than it is to to really get into the nitty gritty of like the language and the theology behind it. But but that impulse is still there to apply the scriptures to the congregation. It's almost like an instinct that a pastor has that if they don't yes. really know what else to do, they just they just do application, which isn't even the worst instinct. But you know, it, it's just a it's a difficult situation because experimental preaching is not something that most of us are conscious of. And like I said, like I said in the last bookcast, like I had never even heard of this concept. And I'm a seminarian, like I'm a seminary graduate who has lots of friends who took preaching courses. And and this concept had just never come up in conversation. And yet Beaky closes out this chapter in a very unapologetic way because he makes the case for why experiential pre preaching is necessary. I think he goes through four points. And the one that I wanted to discuss in particular, because it was just interesting to me and, and kind of brought about kind of a new light on something that I thought was familiar, but when he shined this kind of beam on it, I saw it in a different way. And that is, he makes the argument that scripture exemplifies experimental preaching. And he, he talks about two examples, one which seems somewhat obvious, and that is that, of course, the Beatitudes spoken by our Lord Jesus Christ are really a lesson in experiential preaching. I mean, that is, yeah. it's this idea of soul-saturated truth embodied in constrained behavior and fruit growing. So, of yeah. course, this idea of like Paul talks about, we were constrained by the love of Christ, that the love of Christ was so profound, our relationship so deep with him, that we couldn't help but behave in this way. And we use the word constrained just kind of in the sense of there was no other out. We were hemmed in, so to speak, in this lovely way, not by way of robotic behavior or rote kind of just acquiescence, but the idea that we were wanting to do this because there was just no other way. But then he goes on to talk about how Paul devoted himself to communion with God and this experiential living. And he, he, talk, he quotes Romans 1, 9, which I found interesting, so, which reads, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you. And then he goes on to say this, this is on page 53, the word translated in this text as serve is not the word for the work of a servant, but the devotional acts of a worshiper. 
Paul preached like a priest offering a sacrifice in the temple for God's pleasure. And I wanted to bring that up because I thought that was just a wonderful picture and, and slightly kind of off the beaten path, as you might think of, well, this is what the pastor is doing on the Lord's Day. What do you think about that quote? Yeah, it's it's interesting. And I think it, it is instructive because we often, you know, a pastor is not a priest, right? There's a difference between a pastor and a priest. Right. That's really, really significant. Right. But in a certain sense, the pastor does fill a sort of priestly function of not mediating in a strict sense, but he is the representative of God to the people. And he's in a, in a certain sense, especially in like the pastoral prayer, he's the representative of the people before God. So it's, it's, it's an interesting point to bring up that the preaching itself is almost like a form of, of priestly sacrifice that the, the pastor brings and sets before the people. And in the Old Testament, um, the sacrifice itself was almost like a picture, like an instructional picture for the people of the gospel, of their sin and of the gospel. And so it, it, I don't think it's that far off. I hadn't really thought about it all that much, though. That wasn't that was a section that I read through, and I was like, oh, that's an interesting point. But I hadn't really thought so deeply about it. Yeah, it's really interesting, this idea. He, and he spends more time. People should go back and read that particular page, and, and especially because he spends a lot of time unpacking this idea of service and what it means. Yeah. And I, I mean, again, that, that speaks something to me as well as my role in the body of Christ, not as a strict intermediary, but understanding this work as a devotional acts as a worshiper. And that even right. when we come before uh, the pastor and we're listening to that sermon, that of course is an act of worship, but these devotional acts of love, because again, you have received or been the beneficiary of this experimental experiential preaching such that you are driven into the arms of Jesus Christ in real relationship where you know him personally, not just things about him such that Everything of service becomes not this idea of even obligation. Not, I mean, it's a bond servant, of course, but it's because of strict devotion, of a loving kindness toward a Lord who not just has done these things for you, and so therefore you feel some compulsion to react in response, but more so just because Christ is beautiful and union yeah. with him is glorious to be unified with someone so beautiful like that. So it, it really is kind of an interesting idea. It's it's super deep. Like it's a well that I want to kind of continue to plumb uh, yeah. in my mind. But I mean, he also talks about religion and the need for this or this necessary experimental preaching because religion is more than notions in the mind or actions in the body. And and again, I, I found that kind of something that seemed familiar. But then he goes on to really to really confront this idea that if you just have intellectualism, that's of course going to reduce Christianity Christianity to some kind of like disembodied words and ideas. If you just have moralism, that's going to reduce Christianity to, to just senseless good conduct. So I love that he brings in on this idea of faith. And I think we hear so often in this day and age, like I'm a person of faith, or this person's a person of faith. And that is, I guess, some kind of compliment. This is something about the ability of somebody to believe or to hold resolute, to have some fidelity to some kind of moralistic system. But Dr. Beakey makes this argument that there can be no faith when Christianity has been reduced merely to ideas and behavior, because yeah. that's ultimately going to make salvation meritorious. And so I, I thought it was interesting to think head knowledge can make salvation meritorious. I mean, so I, I love this idea. Yeah. And it was it really struck me too, because I do think that Reformed Christianity in particular has this tendency to 
elevate knowledge to a, a central role in our faith that it maybe doesn't deserve. So, you know, we, we, we have Facebook groups that are dedicated to just discussing ideas, right? And this is not me bagging on the idea of talking about like theology. Obviously this is a theology podcast, but sometimes right. I wonder if we're distinguishable from the Athenians that Paul preached to, right? Who spent all day talking about the newest ideas. And, and when the New Testament identifies them that way, it's not really a positive thing, right? It, it, it's this image of people who spend their time discussing ideas that have no feet, right? It's just these abstract concepts right. that have no feet. And what he's saying here is that real, true, biblical Christian religion has to have feet. And, and the way that a sermon motivates the, the, the Christian religion to have feet is not by increasing head knowledge, but it's by preaching to the affections in the heart of the people. So I, I really thought that this was a central point that I, I, I'm sure he will unpack more as the book goes on. Um, but I just thought it was so important because we do at times abstract our religion to be a kind of a mental construct. Um, and then on the flip side, maybe not so much in reform circles, but in kind of general evangelical circles, which are t tending towards kind of classical Christian liberalism, it's a Christianity that's all feet, right? There's no head. There's no head and there's right. no heart. It's all about the actions you do. And either way, like you can, you can either have this concept where you're saved by what you know, or you can have this concept where you're saved by what you do. But real biblical Christianity, and that's what he's getting at, real biblical Christianity is not that you're saved by what you know, nor is it that you're saved by what you do. It's that you're saved by the one that you trust. And that's that's really where this is coming down to, I think, and what, what I want him to unpack more in future chapters is how does experimental preaching to the heart of the people, how does that build faith? How does that create faith? Obviously, right. in the working of the Holy Spirit, but how does that create faith in the listeners of the sermon? This may be really unpopular, but I feel compelled to say it. I think the greatest sin of the kind of modern reform movement, especially the young, restless, and reformed, is the sin of silent judgment in the theological yeah. sense. And yeah. I've been guilty of this as well, so I'm saying this to myself too. But this idea that even in a kind of implied way that we might sit under the preaching of our pastor or hear a Bible study or be in a small group and hear somebody talk and think, if only for a second, well, I am more secure in my salvation because I clearly know more than this person. Yeah. Or some of my, my sense of who I am, my identity in Christ is because I know a lot more or I had know some really nuanced theological ideas and therefore... I derive some sense, even if that's a small amount of greater security, that is our biggest problem. Yeah. And what Dr. Beeky says here that really just laid me out was he emphasizes that the kingdom of God consists solely of the righteousness of Christ and that the powerful work of the spirit uh, producing effects within our souls that demonstrate a transcendent and monergistic faith. And what I mean by that is recently I was having this conversation with a, a middle-aged woman in, in our church and we were talking and I said to her, I wanted to encourage her because she, she's just been such a light to me, her example through, through throws me things in her life. And I said to her, I sense from you somebody who is just so closely involved with Christ that it draws me to you 
because I sense that you have a real personal knowledge of him, that you know him, that you're in a relationship with him. And her response to me, and this is a woman who knows a lot about the Bible. Her response to me is, honestly, I feel like I know next to nothing. And I thought, that is exactly the response I would expect from somebody who knows yeah. Christ deeply, who's, who yeah. says basically knowledge does puff up. But even beyond that, even if you know a lot, it's this person that has this childlike faith at the end of the day that just trusts in Christ, that trusts that he has been the propitiation for sins, that he has expiated all of the sinful mess that is ourselves. And therefore, through him and by union with him, we are made right and have harmony with God. That's the person who says, I know next to nothing. All yeah. I know is that I'm a sinner and Christ is a great savior. And I just trust in that. Now it's not trust. Of course, like we run the ramp of reason, so to speak, before we take the leap of faith, but it is still the person that understands that the saving gospel is the same for the child as it is for the 90 year old. Yeah. And that's what I feel like he's driving at at the end of the day. And that's a lesson that I just need to like have beat into me. Like somebody just needs to take like that two by four and crank me over the face like Tommy Boy style several times because I just need to keep learning that. I love that Tommy Boy, and particularly that scene <laughs> just came. That is one of my favorite scenes in all movie history. Uh, have we ever talked about Tommy Boy in the show? That's like a classic no, movie, we right? we need to. Look, Prehistoric Forest. <laughs> That's such a great movie. It's so, so good. Everything I know about so sales, I learned from Tommy Boy. Or here. Which is why oh, I'm my not goodness. in sales I, anymore. I've, I've said this a couple of times recently, but there have been times when I've been in meetings and I've wanted to just insert that whole Tommy Boy speech like into something that I was saying. Which Tommy Boy speech? There's so many good speeches in that movie. So there's, there's the... Okay, people need to watch this movie. That, that should be like my affirmation for this week. If you haven't seen Tommy Boy, I can't remember if... Is there any like language in it? It might not even have that much... Like, there's a, there's some, like, a little bit. There's some like... Uh, semi-off-color sexual humor, but there's no, like, nudity or anything graphic. It's it's mainly just, like, nonsense humor, right? That's just absolutely Yeah, hilarious. it's a lot of slapstick, a lot of slapstick humor. There's some, I mean, there's a little bit of swearing, but it's, it's, it's not anything that's going to be, like, worse than what you hear on network television. Yeah, it, it's definitely worth your time. But there's that whole speech where he's talking about, like, the guarantee and how like, guarantees yes. are meaningless if you're... Yes. Yeah, that's brilliant. It is brilliant. It's totally I, I've brilliant. almost said that. Yeah, I've almost yeah. said that several times, like in a meeting, there's a particular line, as you recall, where he says, like, I can take a crap in a box and mark it guaranteed if you want. <laughs> but it's got to be your bowl, Jesse. <laughs> I forgot about that whole thing. You oh, know, yeah, I watched this. Yeah. I watched this movie with your sister, who is my wife, for people who don't know that, because otherwise that'd be a really weird, awkward transla- uh, yeah, transition. That's, that's factual. But I watched it sounded this like movie you were just with, laying out a diss. Yeah. I watched this movie with Ashley. And, you know, I realized how much of modern humor actually traces itself. Like, humor for, like, our generation, like, Gen Xers, traces itself to Tommy Boy. Like, we watch Tommy Boy, and then if you watch The Office, the humor in The Office is really, like, derivative of Tommy Boy. Like, the slapstick, the weird kind of, like, awkward language, it's all, it all draws back to, like, Chris Farley and, um, what the other guy's name? I don't know, David Spade. I don't know. We, it's a, this is now like the reform movie cast. So it, but it, it, it is. We're, we're infringing on popcorn theology. Wait. Yeah. Okay. So before, before we leave this and wrap this up, pivotal question. Yes. Black sheep. Have you seen it? What do you think? I have. And it was, I, it was not great. Boom. You are correct, sir. 
Awful. I mean, it was funny because Chris Farley and David Spade can't be not funny, but it was it was so like it was like it was kind of like the episode two of Star Wars of like the Chris Farley David Spade movies. Yeah, I agree. We we now need to like quote Tommy Boy regularly on this cast, yeah. and everybody needs to stop listening to our voices and do not pass go go immediately to Netflix. Hopefully it's on Netflix or Hulu or something. Go watch yeah. Tommy Boy. Yeah. If you don't, then your head has a thick candy show. <laughs> I love that movie. I have to go watch the movie now. It's like... Surprised you didn't know that, Richard. It's almost 8 o'clock. It's 8.10 on a Sunday <laughs> night, and I'm going to end up watching Tommy Boy because of you. It's your fault, Jesse. Uh, I want to watch it too. It's, it's such a great movie. But so if you want to talk about Tommy Boy, by the way, and you would like to tell us your favorite part, the best way to do that is forget email. That is, I was going to say antiquated, but it's probably older. Well, it's newer than voicemail, which is what I'm about to recommend. Instead, call us, leave a voicemail. <laughs> Tony, do you remember that, that number? Are you call from a walkie-talkie? <laughs> Did I hear a niner in there? 607-444-2767. Niner. There's Rose. no niner. Don't dial a niner. No, anybody who haven't seen hasn't seen Tommy Boy has not understood. <laughs> Did you trail off? You trailed things. off at the end there. <laughs> Lots of people go to school for seven years. They're called doctors. Oh, so good. And we we have a question cast coming up, and we could we always like to have a couple more questions in that proverbial hopper that we can shoot out. So please give us a call six zero seven four 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 two seven six seven. I have one other question for you. Beverly okay, Hills Ninja, a good movie or a great movie? Haven't seen it. You haven't seen Beverly Hills Ninja. Haven't seen it. Oh, do I man. need to see it? You do need to see it. Okay. It's it's not a do Chris Farley, um, David Spade movie, but it's a Chris Farley and that random mm. Asian martial artist guy who was in everything in that like in the nineties movie. But it's pretty good. It's Jackie pretty Chan. Good. No, no, no. It's not Jackie Chan. It was the guy who played uh, Liu Kang in Mortal Kombat. He was in like a bunch of like martial arts movies in the late 90s. You got to see it. We'll watch it the next okay, time we're well, together. Yeah, yeah. That is a great idea. I would love to do that. We are so far off the rails right now. I don't even know what to do. But somewhere, somebody is going to watch Tommy Boy for the first time and have their life changed. So yeah. I feel like this has been... Productive and efficacious. Yeah, but also someone somewhere is going to watch Black Sheep for the first time, which is going to cancel that out. <laughs> so, yeah, stop at Tommy Boy. Do not yeah. go to Black Sheep. It's, Do not go to Black Sheep. It, I mean, it's it was, not worth it. Yeah, just they watch Tommy to Boy a capture... second time. If you have the urge to watch, oh yeah, Black Sheep, just start Tommy by Tommy Boy over and watch it a second time, and it's pretty much the same thing, yeah. except the movie's funnier. I agree. And when you get to that part with the two by four, you can at least draw it back into that was my way of relating to the <laughs> fact that I just need to learn time and time again to trust in Christ like a child. That's what I need beaten into me. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I think Not that pretty here, much does it, Tony. Or here so much. I thought I hit you in the shoulder. <laughs> Not so much here or here, but here. But right here. I knew it, Richard. Nobody's um, understanding this. <laughs> <laughs> Go watch the movie. But uh, until next time, yeah. Jesse, honor everyone. Love the Brotherhood. Uh, what if